May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The season after Epiphany is a time when the church reflects on the miracles of Jesus. When we, along with the whole world, begin to see our Lord revealed not just as a particularly accurate Bible teacher or a wise faith healer, but as the son of the living God, the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the nations. In John's gospel, this is revealed mostly through a series of seven signs, miracles of feeding and healing, and eventually the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. These signs lead to faith for those who have the eyes to see and ears to hear and who are able to recognize Jesus for who he truly is and not just who they might expect him to be. It's made clear in these signs and in all his life that Jesus is not going to be a Messiah who conforms to expectations. And for him to be Messiah will mean prioritizing the mercy of God over everything else. This morning, we read that familiar story of the wedding at Cana. Jesus is at a wedding with his disciples, which is necessary because to be a disciple implies a kind of connectional relationship. Where their master goes, disciples go too. And without a master, disciples are just, I don't know, dudes. (laughs) Mary is there too. In fact, Most of the people that the bride and the groom and their families had ever met would have been at this party if it was at all possible. At this time and place in history, perhaps uniquely, even more in our own time, weddings were communal affairs. If you're wealthy, you would invite the whole town. And even if you weren't wealthy, you'd try to invite as many people as you possibly could afford to feed and entertain. This is a big party with a lot of guests. And that means we don't necessarily need to believe that Jesus knows the bride and groom intimately. It may simply have been the case that there was a large wedding happening and many people were invited even from outlying communities. And of course, in the perfect Jewish wedding, it goes on for seven days. And the guests would set aside work and almost any other responsibility they might have to remain and celebrate with the happy couple and their families as long as they could possibly endure. A wedding was a major milestone, and the community gathered to celebrate at a party that would have been memorable, especially when the wine starts to wear out and run off. So Mary's abrupt words to her son, they have no wine, make it clear that she might be a little bit better connected at this party than her son is. As a woman, Mary would have had access to the hospitality side of things, which means that she probably would have heard about the sudden shortage before Jesus and would have had a chance to learn that this party is headed for trouble. Running out of wine is a problem because in the first century, wine was hugely important for all kinds of social occasions. And allow me to be clear here, despite what some of our Protestant brothers and sisters would have you believe, it really is wine. I don't know if you've heard, 
But the existence of things like hermetic sealing and refrigeration are what make crushed grapes not ferment. In the first century, the fermentation of crushed grapes into pretty strong wine was basically inevitable. And wine was also an expected part of life in Galilee, a region famed for the quality of its grapes. Jewish texts at the time assumed the presence and consumption of wine at festive occasions, not least because wine is known even now to facilitate dancing. <laughs> and you need to have dancing at a party. And of course, it seems pretty clear from that later conversation between the groom and the banquet supervisor that over-serving would not have been unheard of at such a celebratory event. But of course, drunkenness would have been viewed unfavorably because if wine is a gift from God that gladdens the heart, it should not be squandered in drunkenness. And when the whole town is together for a week at a party, it's important that decorum be maintained, but also that the food and wine don't run out or else extreme social friction will follow. The bridegroom and his family are responsible for throwing a party that is not just respectable, but one that the guests will remember favorably afterwards. And if the wine runs out on such an occasion, that is the only thing that anybody will ever remember. To the everlasting shame of the hosts, they will be the hosts of the wedding that ran out of wine. So that's the fear that hangs over this whole story of the wedding at Cana. That if the wine runs out, everything else about the occasion will be an afterthought. I have some friends who were at a wedding like this once in eastern Washington. And the story has been told so many times that it's actually taken on a bit of a mean tinge. So I won't tell you the whole thing. Needless to say, the wedding is remembered as, remember that time the preacher went on too long and used too many Star Wars and Star Trek references? And then that guy in the back stood up and told him to shut up and get on with it? <laughs> That is not how you want your wedding to be remembered. <laughs> Reciprocity is the expectation and the rule that governs all social obligations in the world of the first century. So for example, if you invited someone to your party, they would have been expected to invite you to their next party in return. In fact, wedding gifts, gifts themselves apart from wine, wedding gifts themselves were actually loans that could have been recoverable in a court of law under a lawsuit in the event that the giver and the receiver had a falling out, particularly if they brought you a great gift and you gave them nothing in return. That reciprocal hospitality is a hard rule to abide by. So into the middle of this loaded social occasion, Mary drops Jesus. They have no wine, she says. His response may sound a little harsh to our ears, particularly if you're a parent. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Jesus is making a good point. Shame is the only thing that can happen here. Embarrassment is the risk. But of course, what Mary suggests is that Jesus has brought along his disciples. At this point in the gospel, we think it's probably four or five. And they may themselves have put a significant dent in the wine supply. So while Jesus may not feel like this is his problem to solve, Mary seems to have another expectation. His hour has not yet come to be revealed to the world, so he is holding something back of himself still. And Mary says, 
to the, to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Acting on this request of his mother will not cost Jesus nothing. It begins his journey toward the cross by revealing at least some of his true power to the world. It will let his disciples see that their master is indeed more than just a very wise rabbi, that he is the Messiah who can take the simple everyday elements of life and change them into vehicles for conveying the joy of the Lord. But Jesus likewise will not stand idly by and let this newly married couple suffer. The six stone jars that are filled with water, about 20 to 30 gallons each, are important because they are used for Jewish rites of purification. You remember those regulations that the Pharisees were so fond of prodding Jesus about throughout the gospel, how many times you washed your hands and which hands and which time and which order. So these old stone jars stand in for us for that older covenant, that pattern of rules and law that Christ will in his life fulfill. But we find that the old water of those purity regulations must be made into the new wine of the joy of the Lord. Mercy will be used to fill those jars that were once meant only for keeping the old covenant. They will be repurposed by Christ and become vessels for the love of God. So when those jars are filled with water and the dipper comes out, the master of the feast tastes wine better than anything else that has been on offer previously at this wedding. It shocks him that the host has held back the good stuff until now. It is poured out even after some of the guests aren't in a condition to taste the difference between good wine and bad wine anyway. It seems that the host at this party is more generous than he needs to be, but that is because the host at this party is not the groom and his family, but now Christ himself, who is the most gracious host of all. I think we often focus on the incredible aspects of Christ's miracles, the things that take our breath away, that stun us into belief, that one big thing that happens. But here the miracle is so subtle that if you read quickly, you almost miss it. The water just becomes wine. And in the process, Christ is revealed, at least to his servants and his disciples, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, as one who is ready to act to spare the shame of the host of this party and his family. It's a revelation that does not cost Jesus nothing, but it's something that Christ is willing to do for the sake of his love and in the name of mercy. Jesus acts to spare this newly married couple and their families the shame that they would have faced. And he is willing to start the clock on his appointment with sin and death to do this miracle. To do this thing that in purely human terms is wholly unnecessary. The wedding party is out of wine, but nobody is sick. Nobody is demon-possessed. Nobody is dying. No one is dead. Yet the incarnate word of God, the second person of the Trinity, Christ 
himself turns water into wine just for the sake of preventing the shame of some of his favorite people. Christ takes the ordinary in our world and makes it into something incredible. Water becomes wine so good it's worth remarking on. But only the servants and the disciples and Mary, his mother, understand what's happened and who is responsible. Think about this. God loves us so much that he is willing to spare us embarrassment and shame if it is within his power. So when we avoid coming to God because of, we're ashamed of something we've done or because we're burdened in some way that feels hard to shake, we need to see the mercy that Christ offers at the wedding at Cana. God desires to relieve us of all of our burdens, not just the big ones. We have old hurts and past mistakes that we may hold on to. We may feel so set in our ways that it's impossible to imagine what the new wine of God's mercy would taste like. There are fears that we all know at some point in our lives that we are incapable of being who God says we should be. But we need not be ashamed in the presence of Jesus Christ because he knows what we wish we could undo. He knows the relationships that we long to fix and the places in our lives when we fall short and he refuses to turn away and leave us to the scorn of our embarrassment. When we are running on empty, when joy is in short supply and shame feels like an enemy that is pursuing us relentlessly, we find that Christ is willing to give himself up to save us, to spare us, to ransom us from the sin and the fear that presses in so close on our hearts. He will make water into wine on our behalf so that the joy will flow freely again and we can praise his name. And he will set a table for us with the richest food and the best wine so that we can come in and feast with him. Reciprocity is the way of the world. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You come to my party, I'll come to your party. Reciprocity, of course, is a close cousin of that most American of false gospels that God only helps those who help themselves. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth because Christ offers mercy at the expense of his own life for those who can offer him nothing. His love is such that he loves us despite our selfishness, despite the fact that there may be nothing more at stake than social scorn and a little neighborly gossip. Christ loves us enough that he does not need a better reason to act for us. He shows mercy to those who can offer him nothing, who have no idea of the trouble that they have stumbled into, who have no plan to save themselves at all, but who continue to move forward hoping that, you know, something usually works out in the end. At the party where wine is running out, where joy is in sort supply, Christ offers mercy. And in doing so, he reveals a deep truth about the nature of the kingdom that he has come to proclaim. And that is that the kingdom of God is founded on this kind of selfless love, that mercy and an overabundance of joy 
will dismantle every system built on reciprocity or personal gain because the kingdom itself is powered by that kind of joy and joy is only possible in a place where there is no expectation of a return. Christ gives his love to us freely so that we can celebrate joyfully. The joy of the Lord is that thing that bubbles up in our hearts unexpectedly and leads us often to laughter and to dancing and an ability to look at the world as if the kingdom of God is actually coming despite what we can see. The joy is what led the disciples to be accused of being too prone to throwing banquets, too prone to having lavish dinner parties. It's why the first Pentecost was misunderstood as an all-night rager that had just gone on too long. The joy of the Lord is the thing that should light us up from within each and every morning because his joy never runs out. If we are drunk on the joy of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God, then indeed we will manifest the kingdom among us and be led like the disciples were into belief in who Jesus truly is. So if we are afraid or ashamed or worrying about what the friends and neighbors around us might be saying, we can trust that Jesus Christ wants to relieve us of those fears. He understands that even things that may seem cosmically unimportant or minor matter deeply to the heart of God. And his miraculous love is available for us to transform the old things of the old world into the new things of the resurrection life here and now always on our behalf and for our good. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.